available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Today we have another Baptist Broadcast interview, which I like to do from time to time, kind of spices things up a little bit and uh, introduces you to new uh, people and teachers, people doing great things, writing, uh, uh, publishing, and speaking, things that are helpful pastorally helpful, theologically helpful, and today I am joined by Dr. James Renahan. We are going to talk about a very important project that he has just finished up in connection with Broken Wharf in the UK, and I hope you enjoy. There's much here to glean from, not only in the interview itself, but in the project that this interview is related to. I'm really excited for this interview. Glad you guys are tuning in. Uh, Be sure to, you know, connect to the YouTube channel, go ahead and click that subscribe button if you haven't already, Uh, the bell for continued notifications. If you're listening via Spotify or iTunes, please don't hesitate to leave some kind of a review. Uh, Five stars are always helpful, but please be honest. Let us know what we can do better and how we can improve the content. Enjoy this interview again with Dr. James Renahan. Here we go. And we're live. Brother, it's good to have you on. Thank you, Josh. It's good to see you. Dr. Jim Renahan, uh, kind enough to come on the the podcast. This is the first time, isn't it, that, that I've th- had you on? I think so, yeah. You know, I had I had uh, Dr. Barcelos on uh, a while back, and uh, he just kind of came on to cause trouble, though. So He's, he's talented at that. So you've got a lot of irons in the fire, a lot of uh, a lot of things going on. You just got back from South America. Yep, leave for Australia next week. Yeah, that's... Uh, life is busy. Yeah, yeah, good busy. Oh, that's... very good busy. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got you've got a couple of projects that you've you've finished up and that you're you're still working on, but one of those was. I mean, your your new book that's been out for a while now, uh, it's been out longer than it seems, uh, to the judicious and impartial reader, the second volume in the series. Yeah, it's about five months now it's been out. Yeah. And I've been working through that. It's been very helpful. I have another gentleman at my church who's a newer Christian that's working through that as well. And it's been, I think, crystallizing for him. Oh, um, good. So... Yeah, it's been very, very helpful. And then the other thing that you've had going on is you've edited a book titled A Vindication of the Truth, but the fancy Latin title for that, which would have been uh, more popularly displayed in the 17th century, would have been uh, Vindicii Veritatis. And uh, so, you, and Broken Wharf has published that. Mm-hmm. If I'm yeah. not mistaken, that's correct. And I think it's available for pre-order in the U.S. now. I think it might already be available in the U.K. Um, yeah, I I have. Uh, they sent me some hard copies, which I have, and they told me that there was a pallet ready to be shipped to the U.S. So yeah. hopefully, uh, sometime soon. You know, I I had a uh, I had a Darren from Broken Wharf sent me a copy, an advance kind of reader's copy so I could have one for this interview mm-hmm. and uh, it, it hasn't reached me yet. So oh, no. I, hope it, I hope it hasn't gotten lost in transit. It's been a while. And uh, 
That's okay. I'm glad you have a copy so that you can hold one up on the screen so everybody can see. Yeah, if you don't mind, that's what it looks like. And uh, you can go to brokenwharf.com and visit their bookshop there. Some nice pictures. You can get an idea of what what that what the product itself looks like. But it's worth getting just for the content. Um, yeah, yeah. And Broken Wharf has an e at the end of wharf. Yes, it's yes. the old English spelling w h a r f e dot com. And they're out of Ramsbottom in uh, England. England. Yep, mm-hmm. which is uh, in kind of in the Midlands, if if I'm not mistaken. Uh, no, it's further north. It's is it just north, north okay. of Manchester. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, had uh, Oliver Allman Smith on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was, I guess, last year, and that was a good conversation that we had. Uh, I like to keep in touch with those guys. I like what they're doing over there, and they said they've had more U.S. interest than U.K. interest. Yeah, and uh, really, uh, their project though is is oriented toward their toward toward the U.K., mm-hmm. but they have accommodated the U.S. interest, I think, quite well. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But um well brother, we just I just wanted to ask you about that book. Uh it's 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 been out obviously it's a 17th century work and I think there's been digital copies and free copies that can be found online and things like that. But it's it's always nice to have an updated typeset, something that you can hold in your hands, something that you can mark up and take notes in. Um and you know, something to to hard copies are always best. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> like right. copies better than reading on a screen and uh and so that's what broken wharf has done and you edited that so what's the pro- i know this isn't in the questions that i i gave to you in advance but what's it like to edit something like this well um editing may be a little bit grandiose um you know one of our graduates transcribed it years ago for me because we had the the desire to see it published and it's been a long process but when when it says edited by me um basically that means that i was responsible for uh finding the quotations or finding translations of the quotations identifying the various individuals whose books are cited throughout the work and um making sure that uh it what we have uh to publish today is accurate to the original. Uh, so, you know, often when I think of editing, it's it's like the editor looks at the copy and says, we'll include this, but we won't include that. Um, this, I believe, is a full and accurate transcript of the original um, with notations that uh, I, I put in or that I included from others who helped me with the uh, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin uh, quotations. So is it so it's kind it can be, it could be a very involved process but probably sometimes it's not with something like this though were there any things was there anything that you ran into where it was like uh you know a work that hasn't been published or in print for a long time uh something that was so archaic that you really had to go track it down was there anything like that in in this um, yeah, you know, a uh, couple of things come to mind. First, on the title page, there's a, a Greek quotation and a Latin quotation. And the Latin quotation was easy for me to find. It's from Gregory the Great and his uh, Moralia in Job. But the one uh, in Greek, um, there was a, a hole in the original page, which meant that some of the text couldn't be found. 
and I don't have myself access to a lot of uh, digital um, databases for Greek language quotations. So uh, one of our profs, Timothy Decker, uh, got hold of it and using his uh, access to databases, he was able to find it. It's a quotation from uh, Bishop Theophilac. Um, both the quotation from Gregory and Theophilac are, are basically saying that uh, uh, those who would promote error uh, do so um, uh, in such a way that can be deceptive. Mm. Um, but but that was great that that Dr. Decker found that and he gave us the translation for that. Um, yeah. Another case, a slightly different approach. Um, Gallen Bredesen did the transcript for me years ago and he annotated it as he was working his way through it. And he got to one point where he said, this sentence doesn't make any sense to me. And as I read it, I thought, yeah, it, it doesn't really make any sense to me either. And it was a quotation from John Owen. So I went looking for it in Owen and found that Cox, in fact, did accurately reflect what Owen had published. But then I looked at uh, a revised edition that was published about two years later, around 1650 or so, and uh, found that the revised edition corrected the uh, incorrect sentence from the previous version. So, um, you know, it was obviously a, a typesetter's error in the first edition, and Cox copied it, or and he, he cited it. I mean, it wasn't plagiarism, but he he cited it in with its uh, missing words. Well, I was able to put those in uh, into a footnote, so now we have the complete sentence, not just a, a sentence that doesn't make any sense. So, yeah, editing editing does take some work sometimes because I wanted to check on the accuracy of quotations that are included in the book. It's always interesting to hear stories like that and, and not so much rabbit trails that you, you get on. I mean, maybe sometimes there are rabbit trails that, that lead to further discoveries. And it's always interesting to me to, to talk about those things and to, to, to hear what uh, guys like you get into when working on projects like this. Um, oh, it's, and the, it's detective work. Yeah. It, it's yeah. what it is. And, and it's really rewarding at the end when you can say, yeah. oh, that's what's going on here. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's been, that's been a, a lot of, you know, uh, what's gone on with research and uh, retrieval with our own confession. Right. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. what do these words mean and how are they used in the 17th century and before and, and so it's like journalism, detective work, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of yeah. all wrapped into one. Well, if you if you want to do it right, you have to do it thoroughly. Yeah. And uh, yeah. that was our goal is to, to try to do it thoroughly. And that's what I appreciate about your book is it it, it has so much of the historical background, the uh, letter or not letter, but the uh, to the judicious and impartial reader. Um, very helpful for understanding the confession. And I I think this gets us to, you know, you've mentioned Cox a couple of times. Um, and that, that really gets me to the first official question, the, the, the questions that I actually uh, sent your way in advance. And, and that is, who, who was the author of Vindicii Veritatis, or as the readers are going to see, a vindication of the truth? Who was the author of, of that book? Well, he was a young man, a sort of strikingly young man, named Nehemiah Cox. He was the son 
of one of the first generation particular Baptists in the 1640s. He was born around 1650. Uh, his father was a clergyman in the Church of England who uh, came over to the particular Baptist views and actually wrote an appendix uh, to the first London Confession of Faith or the 1646 version of the first London Confession of Faith. He, um, he seems to have been raised in Bedford because the first time that he appears in the record is in the manuscript church book of John Bunyan's Bedford meeting. And uh, he was approved uh, or called by the church when he was about, uh, so he was born in 1650. He was called by the church around 1670 or 1671 and recognized as a gifted brother on the very same day that Bunyan was called to be pastor of the church. And uh, my son, Sam, um, I, I have a uh, facsimile copy of the Bunyan church book that was done in the maybe about 100 years ago. And uh, Sam, in working with that church book and with the Petty France church book, where Cox became a pastor in London in 1675, was able to pretty uh, well demonstrate that Nehemiah Cox actually was involved in as the penman in many of the entries in the Bedford Church book. So he's, he was prominent as a young man in that congregation. Then in 1675 was called to London and uh, he's only 25 years old and became co-pastor with another man named William Collins, who was probably about mm, six years older. Um, he became co-pastor of this church, probably the largest of the particular Baptist churches in London in the 17th century. They had nearly 600 members. Uh, it was a very large church. And uh, he and Collins were pastors of that church until Cox died uh, in early 1689. So his, his name is not associated with the General Assembly that was held in London in September 1689, which is sad because he was certainly prominent. So the son of uh, an early particular Baptist, a man uh, well-known in Bunyan's church, pastor of a large church in London, highly regarded by his peers, and not just his peers, but also by his seniors. Uh, and we can talk about why he was so highly regarded among his seniors. So born about 1650, died early 1689 at about 39 years old. Mm. He was, from what I understand, one of the probably two editors of the Second London Confession. Yeah, the based on a lot of circumstantial evidence, uh, we believe that it came out of the Petty France Church in London. That's the first place that it appears in the literary record. And uh, Cox and Collins were the uh, the two, seem to have been the two elders, uh, or they were the two elders, the two editors of the Confession of Faith. In fact, uh, as I worked with it and worked with Vindicii Veritatis, uh, I think that some of the alterations that are made in the Second London Confession of Faith are because of the errors that Vindicii Veritatis is refuting. And you can see in the background some of those problems being addressed directly in the language of the Confession of Faith. Mm. Yeah, and so I don't know if you, 
if this kind of information is available, but is are you saying the the vindication of truth is was published probably before the confession? Uh, yes, I I would okay. want to look at that, but yes, it seems to have come out certainly in the same year. 1677 oh. is the same year, okay? Okay. But I think that this was earlier in the year, and the Confession of Faith appears at the end of August. Okay. So it was published at around the same time as the Confession, but and probably just shortly before. Yes. Interesting. And yeah. you get the sense then, like, that at this time, the particular Baptists are really trying to distinguish themselves from something mm -hmm. because a vindication of truth and this gets us to the third the third question here you you kind of answered the second question already when was it published but what 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 was the occasion for this the, i mean there's there's seems to be pains taken in the drafting of the second london of course there's a lot of similarities and carry over from the westminster and the savoy but there's also some some extra clarity um even in areas where those two or three confessions agree so you get the sense that the the, the the baptists are trying to here distinguish themselves from something um so and 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 i have a sense that a vindication of truth is part of that project as well so what was the occasion for this what was going on um at the time that led to some of this fruit here yeah, that's a really important question. And I think that answering it directly is related to this book, but also is uh, related to the publication of the Confession of Faith. Now, here's here's what happened. Around 1645, the Petty, uh, not, I'm sorry, the Devonshire Square Church in London, the church where William Kiffin was for his uh, life a pastor, sent a man out to the West Country. His name was Thomas Collier and he was sent to do church planting. And he was very successful in doing so and became the most prominent uh, particular Baptist out there in the West, uh, you know, what is now a 90 minute train ride from London. Of course, back then on foot or on horseback, it would have been much longer of a trip, but still an important place. Oh, can you hear the thunder? Um, we're in the midst of a thunderstorm here. Uh, second one today. Um, when Collier was out there, he became the most prominent of, of the and, and the leader of those churches. In the 1650s, he seems to have wandered off the track, and the men in London sought to recover him, and, and they seemed to have some success because he acknowledged his faults and he continued on. But by the time you get to the 1670s, he's reverted to his strange ideas, and he publishes a couple of books. One of them was called a body of divinity or a confession of faith. And the other was an additional word to the body of divinity or confession of faith. Now, both of these books using that language confession of faith and uh, being published by a man of real prominence known not just in the West Country, but in London as well as a significant leader among the particular Baptists. There was a growing concern that they were being identified with the errors that he promoted. Uh, his church, the church where he was a pastor, asked for help from the London elders. There were meetings that were held. The men from London traveled out there to the West. Uh, Collier was uh, 
unwilling to listen at all. He dug his feet in. He continued to advocate what were really strange heresies. I mean, problems with Christology, problems with the Trinity, problems mm. with uh, Socinianism, with original sin and the transmission of original sin, uh, a Socinian doctrine of justification by faith that incorporated works. All of the, the main points of, uh, you know, Orthodox Christianity were attacked by Collier. Mm. And he was so prominent, so important that the London elders came to the conclusion that they needed to have a public refutation of his errors. So this book uh, was was written. They charged Cox with the responsibility of writing it. And you can hear the subtitle, A Confutation of the Heresies and Gross Errors Asserted by Thomas Collier in His Additional Word to His Body of Divinity. So it's it very specifically is focused on the, uh, the errors that he's promoting so that it's clear that the particular Baptist churches in no way are following him down the road to heresy, but are asserting a level of orthodoxy. So this book is published, and then soon afterwards, the Confession of Faith appears. And the, the relationship between the two is unmistakable. So they've essentially got this individual who came out from their midst, who is now, in a sense, representing them, uh, yeah. or at least that would be the perception, right? In the public eye, that's right. In that's the, the perception. In the public eye, so so he's so he's taking the already fragile particular Baptist reputation, and he's tarnishing it with these several heresies. Again, you mentioned Christology. Uh, he denied. Uh, the deity of Christ, the Trinity, of course, and um, and so there was a real need then in clarifying and precisely articulating the orthodoxy that the particular Baptist actually confessed. That's right. And you'd say that that's probably the the goal here, then, right? With the when with the vindication of truth, and then also with the confession, in part. Um, Although that might not be the only goal for the confession, but that was that was a major reason for it. Uh, yes, was the clarification of of orthodoxy. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, the there were six London pastors who attached uh, a letter uh, to the beginning of the book, and uh, they expressly state that they are here. It is the manifold errors of Tar Thomas Collier are clearly detected and solidly innervated, um, and they go on and they, they talk about why Cox was the author, why they mm -hmm. chose him. Now, he's only 27 years old at this point, but yeah. um, they, the, and these are senior men. You know, this is, let, let me read you their names. Um, of course, William Kiffin, Hansard Knowles. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Knowles isn't here. William Kiffin, Joseph Masters, who was an uh, Oxford graduate, Henry Forty, who goes all the way back into the 1650s, Daniel Dyke, who was Kiffin's co-pastor, James Fitton, an important pastor in London, and William Collins, who was the other pastor mm. at Petty France. They write this together. And they, they say that they chose Cox, even though he was a young man, because of his reputation for solid learning, because of his orthodoxy, and because in the providence of God, he was available at that time to be able to take up this work. So you, you've got William Kiffin, who at this point is 60 plus years old, 
born in 1618. Well, he's 59, okay, um, as the leader. He's, he's choosing a man who's 30 years younger than him to express his views. It's wonderful when you think about it. it you know, it's, it's a reminder to me as an old man that uh, young men have a place. And uh, we, we old guys need to, uh, you know, work with young guys like you and uh, all, of, all of our other students and the young pastors. And, and it thrills my heart to be able to do so and to even to learn from you. So Cox was chosen because of his skill, because of his ability, and he does a fantastic job in uh, defending orthodoxy in this book. Yeah, uh, and and it's it's very precise when you when you read it, you get the idea that you know this this person was one uh, of a learned nature uh, and and very precise and um, not not overly polemical but very direct and um and hard hitting there's some impactful things that are said there that i think would would steer the earnest churchman away from the errors that were being um you know oh yeah yeah it it's really a very fine defensive orthodoxy so um can you kind of walk us through the layout? Uh, we, we, we've looked at kind of the goal and the circumstances of, of the book. What about the, the content of the book is, at, at itself? You know, what, what's being dealt with? Um, we kind of got an overview of the, the purpose, but what's the content and the, the kind of layout? Uh, a synopsis, yeah. I guess, if you will, of what's yeah. in the Well, uh, you have the, the letter at the beginning from the six other pastors explaining why the book was necessary and why they chose Cox. Then you have his introduction where he lays out, um, let me see how many of them, 20. He lays out in Collier's own words, the errors that uh, he had promoted. Um, and he gives the reference in the books of Collier where you can find these things. And then there are seven chapters. Uh, the first chapter concerning God, and it's a, really a treatment of the Trinity um hold on a minute let me find these other chapters um, table of contents doesn't give the names uh, okay the second chapter is on election the third chapter is on um, the extent of christ's death so definite atonement the fourth chapter which is on page 113 in this copy is um, concerning the moral power of man or free will and also original sin. Um, paragraph five deals with uh, a, a sundry issues. I'm sorry, chapter five, uh, along with uh, the perseverance of the saints. Uh, chapter six is on justification of, by faith. And then chapter eight, I'm sorry, seven, of the day of judgment and the everlasting punishment of the wicked. So it's a, um, you know, a survey through the main points of Christian theology, uh, specifically with reference to the problems that arose from Thomas Collier. And were there, were there other, so was Collier like an isolated incident or were there other people that were kind of espousing his views as well? Did he amass any sort of following, um, 
you know, that, were, that, were there any other components that, that went into this that were circumstantial as well? Yeah, that's a reasonable question. I don't know uh, of any significant followers of Collier. Certainly his church split. And so there were some in his church who followed after him. Um, but I don't think that his following was large um, of any significance. It was more the reputation and the, the tarnishing of the, the, the name of the other Orthodox churches that was their concern. Yeah, and and so these seven chapters that we find in this in this book then are are addressing. So if you see like a, a like chapter one concerning God, I mean, if if Nehemiah Cox is addressing it in this book, it's it's because it's it's a doctrine at issue with regard to what Collier's out there doing and saying and and his influence. And um, so. So Sinianism, and I know again, I'm kind of going off the the advanced questions that I, that I sent to you, but so Sinianism is something that I think a, a lot of people have heard or have read, and for me, when I when I read the word so Sinianism, I know that it has something to do with a you know denial of Orthodox Trinitarianism, but I also understand that. So, so Sinianism involves other kinds of errors and heresy. So it seems to me that it's a, a, a quite broad term. Um, would you mind kind of talking about so Sinianism a little bit? It seems like that that was a somewhat of a, an influential error during their time and before, um, which, of course, would shape the contours of this work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know... Um... Both John Owen and Thomas Goodwin considered Socinianism to be the most significant threat to Orthodox Christianity in England in the 17th century. It uh, is a post-Reformation heresy. Uh, the name comes from the family name Socinus, an Italian family name, or Sozini uh, in Italian. Um, they came to prominence, especially in Poland, and many of the followers of uh, Fausto Sassini were um, called the Polish Brethren. And they were, you, you've just uh, noted a couple of their, their significant problems, a denial of the Trinity, uh, a false view of justification, a denial of the imputation of Adam's sin, a mm. belief that justification may be by works, uh, that, that we, we are not the heirs of Adam's sin, uh, that Adam sinned on his own. And so it's a Pelagian view that sin, the, the sinfulness of your heart and my heart is by means of the imitation of what we see, not as a result of imputation. Um, they were very clever. Uh, and this is what, one of the reasons why they were so dangerous. That Carl Truman argues, uh, and, and I'm convinced he's right, that apart from the rationalism that uh, very clearly uh, identified or, or permeated Socinian views, there was also a kind of hyper-biblicism mm. that uh, characterized their views because they uh, they would, would take the Bible very literally in all that it said. Uh, so it's possible that God could have physical parts, for example, mm -hmm. because the Bible spoke of that. Um, 
one of the, the, the very clever ways that they were promoting their, their doctrines were, was in a couple of catechisms that were published in English in England, in which a question would be asked, and then the answer would be given solely in verses from Scripture. Hmm. So that it seemed, you, you know, the questions were obviously weighted to lead you to think in one direction uh, right. against what we would consider to be orthodoxy. And then the proofs that were given would seem to demonstrate that the Bible itself taught uh, whatever the question was about. It's a very clever method that's been used over and over by heretics mm-hmm. who, you know, they, they focus attention upon this verse or that verse and draw a doctrine out of it rather than recognizing the analogy of Scripture and the analogy of faith mm-hmm. uh, so that every verse in the Bible needs to be understood in light of the rest of the Bible mm-hmm. and not taken on its own. But they were very clever in doing this and apparently were successful. Uh, some of the leading Socinians of the day were actually university graduates from Cambridge and Oxford. Mm. Uh, so they, they, they were not uh, simpletons. It, it's, it seems like that there's an that there's an element of hubris in you know saying of course it sounds pious to say this is what the Bible says therefore I believe it but but it, it seems like what they were actually doing is is saying this is what I say the Bible says therefore that's what it says and so it's it's not as pious as it as it seems um, at first glance it's more so uh, a conforming of the scriptures to their own thoughts and opinions and and uh, presuppositions and and so on. Yeah, and, and you know we don't want to Im- impute the the name Socinian to any evangelicals in our day, but that very methodology is frequently used by many who are otherwise orthodox, but who mm-hmm. in one way or another focus their attention on individual verses of Scripture rather than Scripture as a whole. Right. It's a whole culture of, that's been, you know, it's how I I made the assumption that this is how it was done, and, and proof texting, you know, this idea yeah. that all we need to do is find a verse that seems to to back up something that I'm saying, and then voila, I've, I've rendered a, a demonstration of my doctrine. Um, yeah when really that doesn't take into consideration the whole of the text and the yeah. whole context that the context of every verse of scripture is all of scripture. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't call the followers of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, evangelical Christians in any way. They're not, it's a cult. Okay. But a great illustration of this is the way that they use the text in first Corinthians 15 about baptism for the dead and build mm-hmm a doctrine around it without recognizing that that verse has to be understood in light of all of the rest of the Bible's teaching about baptism and doesn't point us to one particular action that therefore we can make a, a, a foundational practice for our churches. So was was Collier, I know we talked about what the, the kind of method of the Socinians, but was Collier doing this where he would go out and in an effort to espouse or defend his views, he he's he's just citing scripture and saying this is just what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. I, is that what he's doing? Is he's yeah? And Cox has to call him on it regularly by saying, um, 
you know, no one in the history of Christianity has understood this text to mean that. <laughs> or you you have failed to recognize that this text must be understood in the light of that text. Um, he, he he's regularly showing, and so you know, an an unwritten benefit, or no, not an unwritten, but uh, perhaps an unrecognized benefit of a book like this is that its it, its hermeneutical method is instructive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's and it's and it and it's also pulling, whether or not it's explicitly stated. It's it's nevertheless pulling from uh, the historical consensus of Christians throughout history. Oh yeah, yeah. He's regularly citing, pardon me, um, significant individuals from the history of the church, all the way back to the fathers. Which is just the opposite of what like Socinianism and Collier does, where where Collier is saying this is what I'm saying the text says. You have Cox and and others who are saying we're humbly submitting to the teachers who have gone before us, uh, not blindly, but uh, trusting the Lord that he's worked through his people and, and, uh, and also showing deference to the chorus of saints that's gone before them rather than standing up and saying, <laughs> we've got the, we've got the answers, you know? Yeah, that's uh, right. Which is, is uh, it's, it's a breath of fresh air to, to see that. Mm-hmm. Well, brother, I uh, I think that's pretty much really what I wanted to to get into and and talk about. I I'm excited to get my copy of a vindication of the truth at some point. Um, of course, it was shipping from from the UK, so you never know how how that's gonna how that's gonna work out. So at some point, I'll have it. And um, can you just remind the our our, our listeners here? Where they can find a, a copy of this, uh, or maybe pre-order a copy of this? Yeah, go to, to brokenwarf.com with a B-R-O-K-E-N-W-H-A-R-F-E.com and uh, click on the U.S. store. I looked at it earlier today, and you can pre-order there. And uh, shipping was only two ninety-nine. Very yeah, inexpensive not, shipping. No. Um, and so you can get that. You know, Josh, if I can just add one thing. One of the things yeah. that that I think that is great about this book is uh, many, probably the majority of the books that were written by our fathers in the 17th century deal with baptism and covenant theology because that's mm-hmm. what divided them from others. And so you don't find a lot of treatments of the rest of the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith in a lot of particular Baptist books. Now, that's good in that they shared in common the uh, the orthodoxy of the greater Puritan movement around them. But here's an example from the Baptists of um, orthodoxy that deals with matters that aren't about baptism and covenant theology. Mm. So so for that reason, I think it's it's a real benefit to us to have access to this. Yeah. Yeah, it's it it is, and uh, and it and it's it's very rich. It's a breath of fresh air in the sense that it it aligns with everything else that's being said in their day about those topics. But it's it's yet coming from the particular Baptists, and uh, right, it, exactly. it's it's it, you know it's it's not frustrating per se, but it, it's always it's always kind of you know if I can find a Baptist that said it, I I would like to read the Baptist, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, brother, I think that, 
unless you have something else that you would like to add, um, I think that that gives a good kind of overview of the book, maybe encourages those who are listening to, to, you know, go buy the book, read it, devour it, um, commit it to, to mind and learn from it. Um, but if there's anything else that you would like to say or any, any other thoughts that you might have, um, you know, now would, now would, uh, now would be the time because I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap us up. Um, no, just to say thank you to you for, uh, having me on. I've always appreciated my interactions with you and look forward to seeing you in August. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we do have a conference coming up here at Victory Baptist Church. Um, uh, Dr. Renahan is going to be one of the speakers and then Dr. Renahan, the younger, uh, Sam will be another speaker. And then Steve Meister, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sacramento, California, will be uh, a third speaker. And that's going to be August 9th through 10th. So uh, those of you in the area or not even in the, in the area willing to travel, uh, come in. Uh, you're welcome. It's a free conference. Be looking forward to seeing you. And, and brother, I just want to thank you for coming on here. I can't believe it's taken us this long to, to do something together. Um, but it has been a pleasure to, uh, to know you and to even, you know, come, come down to Mansfield the time I was there and, and spend time with you and, and hopefully we'll be able to do something like this again. Great. That'd be great. Thank Alrighty, you, brother. God bless. You too. Bye now.